Our special breaking news coverage continues now of the third, yes, third criminal indictment of former President Donald Trump. I'm Laura Coates. And I'm Erin Burnett. And the news tonight, you know, still stunning, even though uh, people had expected an indictment to come, right? Now it's here. You have to let it sink in. The 45th president indicted by a federal grand jury and special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And it's not lost on anyone that while Trump is facing charges over the last election, he is, of course, in the middle of his re-election campaign, Laura. I mean, this is the third time, the third time that Donald Trump has now been criminally indicted in, what, four months at this point? <laughs> Special counsel Jack Smith charged him in the classified documents probe in June. He had that Manhattan grand jury charging the former president for business fraud back in March. And just listen to what Special counsel Jack Smith had to say tonight. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. All right, so what exactly is in this indictment? Senior Legal Affairs correspondent Paula Reed is here. Paula, you have been working this for so long. Fabulous reporting, you and the team. And today's indictment is laying out how Trump used, quote, dishonesty, fraud and deceit in his efforts to stay in power. So what is standing out to you tonight? Well, the biggest thing that stands out to me is that the former president is the only one being charged today. This is something that our reporting over the past several weeks had suggested to us, but we were quite surprised that he would be the only one charged, at least initially at this point, because he clearly did not act alone, right? You look at the charges uh, that he's facing right now. Three of them involve a conspiracy where obviously he would need someone else. And throughout this indictment, they lay out exactly how he worked with others to amplify what he knew were false claims of election fraud, to litigate this strategy, to pressure various states, to pressure his own vice president. And then, of course, on the day of January 6th, he continued to pressure his vice president. This resulted in violence. And then he and his supporters continued to double down to try to use this as an opportunity to overturn the election. But again, he was not operating in a silo. So really watching going forward to see if any of these six co-conspirators will be formally charged. The other thing, one of the other two things that stood out to me is that we didn't get a lot of new information. We got some new details from like the vice president's handwritten notes, uh, some interactions with political advisors we weren't uh, privy to prior. But given how much additional information that Jack Smith was able to obtain, uh, you know, he got access to Mark Meadows, uh, Vice President Pence. I was expecting that we would learn even more. So it'll be interesting to see if the special counsel releases additional details going forward. But speaking of releasing details, Mm. we did get the indictment today. We didn't have to wait until uh, the initial appearance. We didn't have to wait a few days. The country, the world gets to see the case today and they don't have to wait. And I think that is significant. And that's something we've been lobbying the special counsel to do. And of course, there are some unanswered questions, right? We we have names. The reporting identifies who we believe are at least five of the six co-conspirators. We don't know if they will be charged, where their cases are, but... This case is historic for so many reasons, no matter what the outcome will be. So what are the next steps, Paula? 
Uh, the biggest next step is uh, the former president's first court appearance, and we expect that will happen on Thursday. But it's unclear, Laura, if that'll be via Zoom. That is an option available to him, or if he will come in person. Now, after that, we know that next week, the special counsel has at least one more witness interview scheduled next week, and then at least another one in the next few weeks. So we know from our reporting, this investigation continues. Yes, the special counsel said that, but we know what they're up to. They're continuing to talk to witnesses, witnesses like former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick. He worked very closely with Rudy Giuliani in these efforts to find fraud, to allege fraud. And then one of the other witnesses, at least one of them, is a former Trump lawyer. So they will continue to gather evidence. And it is unclear, though, if there will be superseding indictment and additional charges. We've already seen one superseding indictment, and that led to an additional co-defendant, of course, the Mar-a-Lago case. And so there's already a precedent for this unprecedented time. Paula Reed, thank you so much. Erin? All right, Laura. Well, the indictment against Trump repeatedly references these six uh, co-conspirators that Paul is referring to. And our national security reporter, Zachary Cohen, is here to tell us more about them, the the ones we now know about and, of course, uh, one we, we don't yet, Zach. Yeah, Aaron, the indictment refers to these people as six individuals who Trump enlisted to assist him in his criminal efforts. And through context clues and our own reporting, we have identified five of the six people that are described in this indictment. And if you followed along during the January 6th committee hearings, none of these names really will come as a surprise. But they include people like Trump's former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, um, uh, attorney John Eastman, and even people like Jeffrey Clark, the former DOJ official who we know is trying to use the Justice Department to overturn the 2020 election. And those details, some of them are included in this indictment. Like Paula said, a lot of this information was publicly known, which is how we were able to identify in part some of these folks. But the unidentified person is described as a political consultant who helped implement what is really a central theme in this indictment, the fake electors plot. And this is really one of the cornerstones of Jack Smith's case here. He says that Trump and these six individuals tried effectively to trick these um, electors in these seven states to sign these certificates, asserting that they were the legitimate electors and to send them to the National Archives and to Congress with the idea that Pence could then use them and overturn the election on January 6th. Um, We don't know the identity of this sixth individual yet, but um, I'm sure we'll come back with you or back with that shortly. Right. Absolutely. So, Zach, I'm also curious. I mean, you know, usually the the term used when you're talking about co-conspirators co-conspiracy conspirators, I'm sorry, (laughs) it's getting late, is unindicted. And that word unindicted, the modifier is not present, right? They're just listed as co-conspirators. So, you know, there's nothing in this indictment that is not purposeful. So that word's not in there on purpose. So it could mean they're going to be charged. It could mean perhaps they already have had indictments handed up. We just don't know. Do you have any clarity on this? Aaron, like you said, there could be a number of reasons, including what Jack Smith told us today when we when we spoke publicly, which is a rare occasion. But he said they're still investigating. And as Paula noted, we know from our reporting that they still have witness interviews lined up, including with former New York City Commissioner, uh, Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick, um, who can shed some light on these efforts to find alleged, um, you know, find evidence of voter fraud. But I think the strongest indication is that this investigation is still ongoing. And if you're one of the six people that is unnamed in this indictment, um, or you think you are, you're probably not resting easy at this stage. All right. Absolutely. Zachary, thank you very much. And I should note, of course, from what we understand with these charges, uh, th- these are very serious maximum charges, 20 years, 20 years, 10 years. Uh, this is incredibly, incredibly serious allegations that anyone uh, as a conspirator would be facing. I want to bring in Timothy Hafey now because he was the chief investigative counsel to the January 6th committee. So, Timothy, you look at this 
with an eye unlike almost anyone else, right? Because you have been through reams and reams of information, hundreds of hours of interviews, uh, all related to the January 6th committee's investigation, which was exhaustive. So when you read through this 45-page indictment from Jack Smith and the special counsel, did you learn anything? Did anything surprise you about how it was presented? No. Uh, Aaron, thanks for having me. It, it reads very much like a truncated version of our report. It actually reads very similar to Vice Chair Cheney's opening statement in the first of our summer hearings. It was during that very first proceeding where she laid out that there is a multi-part intentional plan to disrupt the joint session and prevent the transfer of power. It involved pressure on state officials, on the Department of Justice on the vice president and ultimately launching a mob at the Capitol. That's exactly what's alleged in this indictment. So there is not a lot of new information other than some details about direct communications between the president and the vice president, the president and Pat Cipollone. So the special counsel has gotten some additional corroborative information that provides some color, some important context and manifestations of the president's state of mind. But the core conduct that's described is what Hmm. we set forth in our report in our hearings. Right, right. And I know, obviously, you refer to Pence. Uh, You know, I know you all didn't have a chance to interview him, and he did. And, 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 you know, so obviously there's some information from that. But um, I'm also curious because, look, 45 pages, we know he has a lot of information he didn't include, right? And you know you've got to make choices. So um, how much, you know, Paula Reed was referring to this, this question. How much do you think he's holding back? Uh, you know, do you think there's some real some real gems that he's holding back? I don't know what the right word is, but really crucial pieces of information or no? Yeah, potentially. Uh, again, I don't think he's holding back anything, any part of the core conduct. I think he okay. has laid out this sort of three part object of three objects of a conspiracy uh, and, and essentially sketched out the, the pattern uh, that he is going to prove. I'm certain that he has left out some details, some specific conversations, some specific events, some specific allegations. That's common. A prosecutor would never put absolutely every fact that he or she has gathered in an indictment. This is a speaking indictment and in, in pretty detailed. But as you said, Aaron, my guess is that there are some additional facts that would mm-hmm. be further proof of the allegations that we'll find out about uh, so when you went through everything and all the information you had, right, you recommended criminal charges, you recommended investigation. Um, I'm curious, when you go through this, he did not uh, charge Trump with seditious conspiracy, inciting a mob. Those charges are not in here. Does that surprise you or does that disappoint you? No, he charged the two lead counts or the exact two that the select committee referred for his consideration, mm-hmm. destruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States. Seditious conspiracy, we considered and did not include that in our criminal referral. That in, requires a prosecutor to prove an intent to use force. There was evidence of that against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. We looked very hard for evidence that the president was in communication with or somehow in uh, was was aware of their plans or their actions, and, and we weren't able to establish it. It doesn't mean it isn't there. We just weren't able to establish it. This, the special counsel has not either. Otherwise, you would have hmm. seen a seditious conspiracy count. He is. You're not going to issue an indictment absent proof well beyond a reasonable doubt in a case of this magnitude. And I'm not surprised at all that he chose obstruction of the official proceeding. Doesn't require any intent to use violence, but rather intent to obstruct, interfere, or impede 
the joint session. We found that, and he's only gotten more evidence since then. All right. And uh, as you point out, you got, he would need to go responsibly with what he felt he could prove beyond a reasonable doubt, obviously requiring a unanimous jury uh, for conviction here. Thank you very much, Timothy. I appreciate your perspective. Thank you. my panel is still here with me in Washington, D.C. There's something that keeps going in my head, everyone, about this, and that is the notion of the First Amendment aspect of it, and especially what is happening in terms of whether or not Trump is going to be able to build a defense, really, in this case. And so you've got his allies in Congress rushing to his defense, as you well know, but his lawyer was actually on with Caitlin Collins earlier. And um, well, listen to what he had to say about the First Amendment issues. The ultimate request that Mr. Trump made to Vice President Pence was pause the the vote counting, allow the states to weigh in ultimately and audit or recertify. And under Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, the the actual responsibility for qualifying electors is in the state legislatures. Mr. Trump had the advice of counsel, Mr. Eastman, who was one of the most respected constitutional scholars in the United States, giving him advice and guidance. That's pure politics. What do you guys think? I mean, the idea, I'm talking to lawyers here about this, advice of counsel, is that going to be the ultimate protection? As long as your lawyer told you to do so, that's it. It's already been litigated uh, before Judge Carter in California when John Eastman tried to uh, uh, resist turning over documents to January 6th. And he says, oh, attorney-client privilege. But there's no privilege when the lawyer is helping the client commit a crime. What my friend John Loro said about the Constitution, you can turn that document uh, upside down and sideways. You will not find the power that he's describing in the Constitution. This, the notion that Pence, for the first time in American history, had the power to pause He's a he's purely ministerial. I mean, he's basically the guy if we're England, he'd be the guy who walks in with the mace and the funny hat. Okay, he has no power to pause that proceeding is not in the Constitution. Trump knew that full well. Pat Cipollone, his White House counsel, Jim knows. Pat Philbin, the deputy White House counsel, one of our most brilliant constitutionalists and many other people told himself that will not wash. I don't even think the judge is going to let them make that argument Mm. to the jury. It's so far outside the pale. You agree? Well, the advice of counsel defense is a little bit different than that because Trump wants to argue that it's not my fault. I had no state of mind. I was relying upon my lawyers. That's what makes the naming of those, well, not the naming, our discovery of the identity of those co-conspirators so intriguing. They're all lawyers. And one aspect of this is maybe Smith is in a big hurry-up mode, couldn't completely finish everything before he indicts. But the other offensive strategic point is it takes those people off the table. It's very hard to decide to go and testify in favor of the defense if you're named as a conspirator. You've got a big Fifth Amendment concern at that point. I mean, the idea of, I mean, can you walk past every road that says common sense, common sense, obvious, obvious, and go you know what, I like this one over here. That's what he essentially would have to say because you've got the attorney general, you've got the deputy attorney general, you've got a White House counsel, you're a former Trump White House lawyer. I mean, you have all these people who were saying, including secretaries of state and beyond, what you are saying is not true. And the complaint says, you know, that's not true. 
Can you really say, look, I was just following my counsel, or were they following him? Again, I think that's why he's the only named defendant in this case. I think that they want to make it clear that he was the one driving this. Mm-hmm. And that they were just, he was go, he got advice from a number of folks that said, very credible lawyers, some of the best lawyers and constitutional scholars in Washington, no, you can't do this. And yet he went to others and got a second opinion. And was he driving the conversation to get the answer he wanted? Or was he really just going out and seeking counsel? I mean, this idea of plausible deniability, I mean, it's a kind of a sexy concept. Except in politics, is it realistic, Margaret? It's, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but this, it goes beyond the attorney-client, uh, to me, argument. It's the, the case that political speech is that broadly protected. I mean, that's really fundamentally the case that John Laura is making, that you could almost use political speech as a shield to do anything as long as you're doing it while being a political candidate. And I think we've been looking at this as though, it, as though that is a political argument. Like, that couldn't possibly be a plausible legal argument. But if you're looking at a Supreme Court that is actually more conservative than the court that gave us Citizens United, mm. I think it's worth asking the question, like, what if that was a plausible argument? What would happen to the American presidency? What would happen to the political system if a candidate for a president or a sitting president who was trying to hang on to the presidency could essentially say anything and make moves at anything because it's protected speech. But yet there is more to what John Laura was saying to Caitlin Collins in the full interview when he does talk about the idea of he believes, and he's, he's saying this, that it is this indictment that is turning the notion of political speech and on its face. It's essentially saying, you mean I can't just have a political strategy? I can't be critical, I can't bet on a particular strategy, and, and I'll be punished. Is that going to be a good talking point that will have staying power? I mean, I think it'll be a good talking point for the Republican Party. I'm not certain about the individuals in the middle, however. Mm. I think Norm sort of laid this out pretty clearly. The way this indictment was written, and I've had some time to read through it, it's pretty clear. It's a pretty simple narrative. Most people can generally understand it. This guy did something illegal. He lost. He tried to pretend that he won. He tried to find fake votes that weren't there. People get that this stuff is absolutely wrong. And so this idea of like this divine rights of kings theory, Norm, you know a lot about that, that the president can say whatever. And, a lot and of and no England talk happening tonight. A lot no of, we're in the United Laura. States, people. But go ahead. People just don't believe that the president should be above the law, regardless if it's a Democrat or a Republican. And so I think trying to make a cogent point to the American people, particularly those in the middle that Donald Trump is, just will fall on deaf ears. What do you think? I mean, I think the polling of it and the way that it's being described. I mean, it's Sir Michael's right, but the severity and the gravitas. But are people like, OK, so what? I think a lot of this is already priced in because Mm. as we heard, you know, in the January 6th uh, commission, we've already heard a lot of these details before. There are some new things in here. Mike Pence being told, you're too honest. You know, there are little things that might be new, add some contemporaneous notes. But in general, the narrative is pretty similar. And so if you came into this day already believing that Donald Trump's a criminal and he's terrible and he tried to overthrow an election, this validates you. But if you woke up this morning thinking Donald Trump got done wrong in 2020 and ever since then the Biden administration's been coming after him, today validates that for you. And so I don't think this alone moves the polls. What could move the polls is as this advances, do Republicans really start to stare down the barrel of the reality that they're going to nominate a guy who might be going to prison? And does that actually spook Republicans not to say, I think Donald Trump is wrong on the merits, but to go, are we really going to do this? Are we going to risk giving Joe Biden another four years by going with Donald Trump? He might be going 
to prison four times. We're talking about four major felony cases. Don't discount that Alvin Bragg case. That's not a hush money case. Donald Trump falsified documents to cover up uh, hush money payments to interfere with the 2016 election. It was the gateway drug for this federal prosecution, and that can carry jail time in New York State. The lawyer, prisons. The lawyer in me says... Allegedly. There you go. I had to do it. The lawyers know why. Everyone stand by. Aaron, you have some new reaction from some of Trump's rivals, I understand. Right. And, and Laura, this goes to the heart of what you're saying, right? It, people, everyone, everyone, no one's above the rule of law. Well, true, except for if you're just going to question whether the rule of law itself is even fair. And that's what's happening from Tim Scott. So um, Tim Scott's just come out. Uh, responding to the latest Trump indictment, I remain concerned about the weaponization of Biden's DOJ and its immense power used against political opponents. What we see today are two different tracks of justice, one for political opponents and another for the son of the current president. We're watching Biden's DOJ continue to hunt Republicans while protecting Democrats. So questioning the rule of law itself and Tim Scott, um, getting in line, I guess would be the way to describe it, Scott. Yeah, this is the majority opinion of the average rank-and-file Republican. You could have pulled that right out of a poll that was, I'm sure, taken sometime in the last two weeks. Because Republicans, here's the way Republicans see it, most of them. Got the DOJ last week colluding with the Biden family's lawyers to get a blanket immunity deal for Hunter. The next day, they're piling on more indictments on Trump and some random, you know, Portuguese immigrant who works at Mar-a-Lago. Today, you have this, while everybody seems to be ignoring the whistleblowers and the evidence of Biden family corruption. So the average Republican believes that. You see this channeled in Tim Scott's statement. You see it channeled in Ron DeSantis's statement. And the reason they're channeling it is because they're hoping for a day when Donald Trump evaporates, like something happens, like he's not in the race anymore. Yeah. It's right. just not something they can affect, by the way. And they want to be able to pick up the bulk of the party that believes exactly what you just read. Well, and, and okay, and you had Will Hurd on, uh-huh. obviously being a different point of view. You had Asa Hutchinson on earlier, different point of view. Chris Christie Chris Christie. comes out, uh, slams, the disgrace falls the most on, on, on Donald Trump. He swore an oath to the Constitution, violated his oath, and brought shame to his presidency. Chris Christie has a 70% negative approval rating among the GOP. Well, that's why, because he says this, they don't want to hear that. But it's the truth. And I think part of the question we're dealing with right now in this country is how much does how much do facts matter? We need to conduct a facts-based debate in this country so we can reason together. When Tim Scott, I think, is a good man, presenting a generally optimistic vision in, in an overwhelmingly negative Republican field. What he said, the idea that this represents two tiers of justice in this country, is fundamentally factually wrong. This indictment shows that there is one standard of justice, that no one is above the law. And, and this is about, you know, take a step back from politics. This is about mm-hmm. the most serious historical moment we've had in our country in a long, long time where a former, where a sitting president tried to overturn an election on the basis of a lie. And this lays it out fact by fact. And so folks want to engage in magical thinking and not read this uh, indictment as a matter of pride. They are engaging in willful ignorance for short-term political expediency, no doubt, but it doesn't make it right. And we shouldn't dignify it. One other quick, and I know lawyers are going to weigh in. There is an emerging theory on the right tonight about that even people who believe January 6th was horrible, that Trump violated his oath of office, whatever, that it's possible to believe that he was totally wrong and immoral and shouldn't hold the presidency again, but that you also don't have to also believe that he should have been charged with a crime. So I'm starting to see people on the right tonight parse it out. I don't agree with January 6th. I think he was wrong. This indictment seems thin. I wish they hadn't have done it. 
I'll just, I'll just remind folks that the argument that the senators made who didn't vote to impeach the second time around was this is an improper way yep, to handle this. Good. It should be done through the legal system and the Justice Department. Give it time when he's a private well, let's citizen. Let's hope that they're consistent. All right. So That's now right. you all have had a chance to go through this in more detail. Um, so, Ryan, you've got some more things that stand out to you in here. Like what? I think the one that stands out to me that I hadn't seen in first instance is the kind of a roadmap for state and local prosecutors. When the the indictment does raise new allegations that we did not know of before, for example, Arizona, there's evidence here that says that Trump and Giuliani and Eastman, when they called the House Speaker, Rusty Barrows, what did they ask him to do? To do things that violated his oath by telling him, can you get your legislator to overturn the popular vote? Arizona is currently investigating the false electors. Will they also investigate them? Similarly, in Georgia, this is going to put booster rockets in a certain sense in the Georgia criminal indictment if it comes, because there's very strong evidence here that Trump very much knew when they filed litigation that he was entering false statements. In fact, was even told by Eastman, we can certify this because we now know it's false. And what do they do? Eastman and Trump certify it. Mm -hmm. So there's things like this in all of the states. And then there's another line in there. It's paragraph 66. They say the false electors are at the direction of Trump and Giuliani. That's also new information across all the seven states, which I don't know if this changes politics in any which way, but it maybe brings it home to the states of people if their state prosecutors and local district attorneys do want to take it up or investigate Giuliani, for example. Which is amazing. You're now talking about, wow, okay, a whole lot more. I mean, in terms of this this docket and how many more indictments could be coming in various jurisdictions. but, Karen, one thing about this and what, 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 what's in it and not in it is that, it, from your perspective, this is designed to move as quickly as something can move? Yeah, that's what's b- really brilliant about this indictment is, at the same time, it's a 45-page, complicated, factual scenario, yet incredibly simplistic, right? There's one defendant four charges. That's it. So there's really one set of defense motions that will be made, one set of defense lawyers who will be saying, I can be ready, I can't be ready, Jack Smith and and his team. You know, like, it's, it's just so streamlined. There's no classified documents involved here, so they don't have to worry about people getting top secret clearance or all of the Thank complexities you. with the Mar-a-Lago case and the different defense attorneys that are going to cause delays and all the different motions and motions to sever and, and all of the things that will happen here. There's none of that. It's just one defendant, so it can four charges. It can go quickly. And I think it has the best chance of all of the indictments against Trump of going before the election. Which is very significant to say, because obviously it's, it's not the last, but it's, we're, we're at the tail end of a whole, a whole host of them that have been coming over many months. And to that point, Elliot, what stands out to you is what is not charged. Yes, exactly. In order to have a streamlined indictment, there's probably decisions that had to be made uh, on things that couldn't be charged. And, you know, we've spent the greater part of the last two years or so debating the question of whether the former president would be charged with things like seditious conspiracy or inciting violence or so on. And I actually uh, think here that it would have been incredibly hard to tie the president to some of these, uh, some of those things. So for instance, seditious conspiracy, you'd have to prove some agreement to use force or threats to uh, prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of American law. Now, that happened, and many people were already convicted of it, but tying the president to that would have been incredibly difficult, and you would have also run into some pretty serious First Amendment right. free speech. Explicit versus implicit. Explicit versus implicit. Yeah. And, and all of those things from his speech, which were disgraceful, shameful, 
for a former president, unbecoming, not befitting the presidency. But I don't know if you could charge them as crimes, given the fact that he was a candidate and, and so on. So it would have been uh, incredibly difficult to do. Um, and then the other thing, so that, that's what's not yeah. in the indictment. Mm-hmm. The other thing that, that I just think will be interesting over these months is what proof or how the Justice Department establishes that civil rights claim, the the deprivation of rights in some way that the president engaged in. Was he depriving voters of their rights to a free and fair election? Was he depriving Mike Pence of the ability to do his job? Both of which could, could be established under that uh, section of the code there. It's... It, it's not entirely clear how they're sort of how they establish that. And I think it'll just be interesting yeah. over the months to see what what establishes it. In- All right. All stay with me. Laura. This is really where the rubber is going to meet the road, as you know, as Elliot talking about. How do you actually prove the case? Because that really is the next step if you are Jack Smith. And up next here, Michael Fanone, who was attacked on January 6th, joins us to react to this indictment. This is a CNN special live coverage. Former President Trump indicted today for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But in the face of these new criminal charges, Trump's allies on the Hill are coming fast and furiously to his defense. I want to bring in our Melanie Zanona, Capitol Hill reporter. And Melanie, uh, they're not taking a lot of time to, I mean, they're coming in quickly with their point of view because they're they're purposely saying they don't have any reason to read this indictment because they already know what they think. Yeah, well, actually, Republicans have been preparing the response for weeks, even before seeing the scope of the charges. And in some cases, Aaron, they have been directly coordinating with Donald Trump himself about how best to defend him. Donald Trump has spoken in recent days to some of his allies, including Elise Stefanik, trying to strategize over a messaging plan here. I'm also told that he sent talking points to Capitol Hill, arguing, at least in part, that Trump was only consulting his attorneys in the lead up to January 6th. And now some on the right are calling to defund special counsel Jack Smith, though, of course, that would be dead on arrival in the Senate. But Aaron, I am expecting Republicans to ramp up their focus and investigations into the Biden family. In fact, a number of Republicans in their statements today suggested without evidence that this indictment was purposely timed to coincide today to come one day after they heard testimony from a Hunter Biden business associate. I want to read you part of Speaker Kevin McCarthy's statement. He said, Everyone in America could see what was going to come next. DOJ's attempt to distract from the news and attack the frontrunner for the Republican nomination, President Trump. House Republicans will continue to uncover the truth about Biden, Inc. and the two-tiered system of justice. Though, Aaron, I think probably the most remarkable statement was from Marjorie Taylor Greene tonight, who said she was still going to vote for Trump, quote, even if he was in jail. So just really summing up the state of play in the Republican Party right now. But notably, we did not hear from Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell. He has been silent throughout all of the indictments and legal troubles facing former President Donald Trump. So really a tale of two Republican leaders there. All right, uh, Melanie. And as Melanie's talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, John, you were... uh... I think it's called a face palm. I was trying to figure out the best way to describe it, Um, but it was it was pretty notable. Yeah. Um, But I mean, those those are the stakes Uh, as a practical matter. If Republicans go forward and nominate Donald Trump, um, they could very well be nominating someone who is facing prison time. And and as Marjorie Taylor Greene just said, she would vote for him if he is in prison. Now, according to this New York Times-Siena poll, there seems to be around 37% of Republicans uh, who may be in that same camp, will support him no matter what. But the rest of the Republican Party, the majority of the Republican Party, needs to understand that if they nominate someone with this kind of baggage, uh, that that, that is kryptonite 
when it comes to appealing to independent voters, moderates, and moderate Republicans. Yeah. All right. Laura? So much more to unpack about that. I want to play more, by the way, of what Jack Smith said tonight. Defended the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are heroes. They are patriots and they are the very best of us. They did not just defend a building or the people sheltering in it. They put their lives on the line to defend who we are as a country and as a people. They defended the very institutions and principles that define the United States. One of the people trying to hold that line is CNN law enforcement analyst and former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone. Michael Fanone, I'm so glad that you're here tonight. I've been wondering what you have been thinking about all this. What is going through your head tonight after this indictment came down? When I first learned about the indictment, um, I had a long conversation with a friend of mine, Ryan Riley, and uh, I told him how proud I felt uh, to be an American at that moment, uh, much in the way that I did uh, when I learned that uh, our military had killed Osama bin Laden. Um, I just felt incredibly proud. These two um, seem incredibly to proud you? to have been. I'm sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but the, why, why, are that, why that comparison <clears throat> in particular? I believe they're comparable. In what way? Absolutely. Uh, Osama bin Laden was a terrorist who committed a horrific act against American people uh, and against our republic. And I believe that Donald Trump is a terrorist who committed horrific acts against the American people. You can imagine that that is a very eyebrow-raising statement, to say the least, the notion of Osama bin Laden in a comparison to Donald Trump. It likely speaks to just how deeply you have been concerned and have felt about all of this. But are you concerned that statements like that or the rhetoric surrounding what his role has been is going to cloud people's view of this indictment as a fair process? I think that the only person or people whose view matters uh, with regards to this indictment uh, are the jurors who will eventually be sat uh, and listen to the facts um, and ultimately make a judgment as to whether or not uh, Donald Trump is guilty of the charges that uh, Jack Smith and the Department of Justice uh, have brought forward. The DOJ, as Other you than know, that, what I say... What, what I say or, or what Republican lawmakers say um, is just, you know, shit to take up time on cable news. Well, I do appreciate the way you want to spend my evening, but I do want to hear what you understand and what you think about this truly, Michael, because when you think about what we were all watching on January 6th and seeing the events unfold, this indictment talks more than just what happened on that day. It talks about what led up to it as well, and not the moments, the hours that were spent by you and so many of your brave colleagues trying to hold the line and defend, really, this seat of democracy, as uh, Jack Smith talked about today. But you've been concerned consistently about whether people would really face consequences for what happened on that day in particular as well. When you read through this indictment, and you, you're a former member of law enforcement, so indictments you're no stranger to, and the idea of what's charged and some of the reactions to it, when you read through this indictment, saw these charges, is it enough? Does it not go far enough? 
I mean, again, I, I've talked about this before. I think that, uh, and you know, as a former uh, federal prosecutor, you know, Jack Smith's job is to pursue the clearest charges against Donald Trump. Uh, I know that there are friends of mine, colleagues, people that were there with me on January 6th that would have preferred charges that more associated Trump with the violence of that day. Um, I get it. But at the same time, I think it's most important that you present charges uh, in which Jack Smith feels that he can secure a conviction. But regardless of that, I think today is significant, at least to me, it represents the end of two and a half years of advocating for this. Uh, Donald Trump uh, was indicted, not because he's Donald Trump, the asshole, but because he's Donald Trump, a former president, wealthy, white male, literally checks all the boxes of the entitled and privileged in this country who normally uh, circumvent any type of accountability for the crimes that they commit. But there was evidence that he committed crimes. There were courageous Americans at the Department of Justice who put their careers and their safety on the line to pursue this investigation and secure an indictment against Donald Trump. You've we never should be celebrating you that. You've never hidden how you feel about him and, the, and your personal opinion of who he is. But I always find it interesting. You and I have had these conversations before about this notion um, that there seems to be an epiphany to some people that we are a nation that has more appeal to the haves than the have-nots. And our justice system can oftentimes really showcase that. And yet the way it's being talked about, the way that there's a so-called two-tiered system of justice often doesn't apply to the conversations that officers are demonstrating and talking about and prosecutors on the, I guess, the legal front lines are describing. But one of the questions, now there's been an indictment, do you think that Trump will ultimately face consequences for his role as alleged on January 6th? I think that uh, he will be tried. Uh, I don't know, you know, what's your definition of consequences? What's um, yours? And, and to be honest with you, <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you're asking me personally, uh, well, I don't it's not, don't bait me into something I can't say on cable news. Um, I think we, we, pa we passed that I, part about three minutes ago, Michael Fanon, but okay, keep going. That's fine. We, 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 we turn left, we turn right, now we're here again. Uh, I mean, uh, I'll tell you, Laura, I think that, you know, Donald Trump should go to prison for the rest of his life. Um, and I w would hope that, you know, he would... Um, have a stroke and live forever. Uh, that's what I would like to see happen to Donald Trump. But again, I mean, that's just, you know, me personally. Um, what's important is that the rule of law was upheld, uh, that, you know, that old adage that, you know, we told each other over and over again in our careers in law enforcement, you and me, that no one is above the law. Well, today, um, you know, I, I actually believe that. Um, because here we are with a former president who's been indicted uh, and now has to face the criminal justice system. Um, not a position that I would want to be in. Michael Fanone, you know, I know you as an officer as well. And I know that one of the things that you strongly believe in, and I know that there is a lot of um, 
extraordinary feelings you have about this issue personally. But I know you stand true to the presumption of innocence and that presentation of evidence that's coming in the next set of this. We'll see how the trial actually goes in this event. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for having me. Aaron. All right. Well, Laura, coming up, the lead counsel and then President Trump's first impeachment. Daniel Goldman will be with us next. Well, former President Donald Trump, of course, is now indicted for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election and is set to appear before a judge in Washington on Thursday. So the arraignment's going to come very quickly. Special counsel Jack Smith making it clear he's pushing for a speedy trial. My office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. In the meantime, I must emphasize that the indictment is only an allegation and that the defendant must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. I want to bring in New York Congressman Daniel Goldman. He was also the lead counsel in then-President Trump's first impeachment, uh, and, and part of the reason, of course, so many uh, knew his face long before now. So, Congressman, I appreciate your time. 45 pages in this indictment. As an attorney, what have you learned? Well, it is a sweeping and powerful indictment that lays out a series of escalating efforts that went from the legal to the grossly illegal for that Donald Trump led in trying to overturn the election and install himself uh, as the unrightful president of the United States. Um, I think the number of different tentacles of this conspiracy is quite alarming. You mentioned Jeffrey Clark, and he is, of course, one of the six co-conspirators mentioned. Now, we have identified five of them, Rudy Giuliani, uh, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, Jeffrey Clark, and Kenneth Cheesebro, right? All attorneys, or in the case of Mr. Clark, uh, at the time, a member of the Justice Department. There is a sixth, a political consultant uh, that we have not yet named. These six individuals, though, Congressman, we do not know if they have been indicted yet or not. It does not say uh, that they are unindicted co-conspirators, just says uh, co-conspirators. What do you read into this? Well, I read that they wanted to have uh, an individual and separate indictment of a former president of the United States Hmm. um, because of the importance that he has, the fact that there's a special counsel only because Donald Trump was the subject of this investigation. But if I were any of those six co-conspirators, I'd make sure I have my lawyer on speed dial. And I would expect that unless they come in and cooperate, which I doubt they will at this point, uh, that they will be on the other side of the V in an indictment uh, in the near future. So there are several things in here that we learn, um, you know, just from from one of the basic things of, you know, Trump having a meeting in the Oval Office with his national security team well after he'd lost the election. Uh, when he when he at the end, he says, oh, yeah, you know, it's too late for us. That's for the next guy, you know, making it very clear he knew he'd lost. I mean, there's details like that in here. There's also the detail that the vice president, Mike Pence, took notes and apparently was a very detailed note taker, took, taking contemporaneous notes during his meetings with the Trump, uh, with Mr. Trump. It notes in one instance, uh, Pence takes notes saying, 
Uh, Trump falsely tells him that the Justice Department was finding major infractions. Another time Pence is making, mentioned taking notes is when Trump makes knowingly false claims of election fraud, including uh, the, quote, bottom line, won every state by 100,000 votes and we won every state. Now, I, I was talking earlier to Olivia Troy, who, as you know, of course, uh, worked for the former vice president. She said he was a very uh, detailed note taker, that he would use a black Sharpie and index cards. So now we know this and we know that he was providing these notes uh, to the uh, DOJ. How big of a role do you think his notes could play? Well, there are those notes. And remember, Richard Donahue has the notes about when Trump said, just say it is corrupt and leave it to me and the Republican congressman, which is mentioned in the indictment, but not referred to the notes. Notes, contemporaneous notes are very powerful corroboration uh, when a defendant, a defense counsel tries to undermine the credibility of a witness because uh, you have real time recording of what the individual said. And so it's another uh, element of proof because it corroborates and, and builds credibility for what the witness said. But Aaron, you really did point out one thing that jumped out at me, which was that conversation about foreign affairs, international, national security issues unrelated to the election when Donald Trump says, well, 17 days before the inauguration, well, we'll leave this to the next guy to deal with. That is an admission that he knows that he lost before January 6th and his efforts to uh, convince, uh, to say it nicely, Mike Pence uh, to throw the election for Donald Trump. That is a critical, critical piece of evidence uh, because the defense will be that Donald Trump is such a narcissistic sociopath that he actually believed his own false statements and his own disinformation, and therefore he doesn't have the necessary mens rea, the intent and knowledge to commit a crime. That's not a legitimate defense when you are you are uh, faced with facts and you just simply choose not to believe them. That would mean that almost no defendant could yeah. uh, be ever convicted of fraud. Um, but that is un- unquestionably the like the too crazy for conviction defense <laughs> that they will have in that specific statement is going to be very important. Right, is damning in that regard. Although interesting, as you say, your best defense is being a narcissistic sociopath. I mean, if that's the way they go, that, that you know, yes, you were told a million times <laughs> um, uh, that, 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 that this was false, and yet you continue to perpetuate the lies. Congressman Goldman, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. And my panel is back. Karen, one thing that the congressman was just talking about, we were talking about this this incident um, where there's a meeting um, on the evening of January 3rd. The president, national security team are together. They're talking about an incident that has nothing to do. A situation has nothing to do with this. And, and the you know, actions are recommended. And the defendant, President Trump, calmly uh, says, yeah, you're right. It's too late for us. We're going to give that to the next guy. Look, this immediately stood out to all of us as very significant because he's clearly acknowledging there's going to be a next guy and he lost on January 3rd, before January 6th and two months after the election. It is, however, in this 45-page indictment, the only example like that in here. doesn't mean it's the only one Jack Smith has, but it's the only one that's included. Right. Look, Jack Smith is not going to put every single fact in the indictment, just mm-hmm. enough to tell a story. You'll get more of those facts at trial. For example, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, who is uh, often a 
a guest on on CNN or right. she, was even earlier yeah, tonight. Of course, exactly. Yeah. She she you know she talks about when Trump says, "I can't believe I lost to this effing guy." Right. That was a statement he made, acknowledging that he mm-hmm. lost. You know, there are these glimmers of it that he. How did he not know? He lost sixty court cases. Right. More than sixty court cases. He right. knows he lost. He was just looking for an answer, and there are those glimmers in there. And I think that is a that's a crumb in. It is in so the amazing indictment. to me, though, in all of this that you know it's like someone comes to you and says the sky is purple and then the burden's on you to prove that they don't know it's purple when the whole world looks up and sees that it's blue i feel like that's kind of where we are on this of course the guy knew he lost the election right i mean and yet you have 45 pages trying to prove uh that he knew he lost the election i mean it's just something sort of stunning just to I don't know if my blue sky analogy works, but it's sort of how it it comes across. You're identifying reckless disregard of the knowledge of the color of the sky. Someone is allowed to believe that the sky is purple. But if they receive advice from their attorney, the head of uh, uh, the director of national intelligence, um, the attorney general of the United States and any number of people around you saying, no, sir, I'm providing you concrete legal advice that the sky is, in fact, blue. You can be found guilty of believing the sky is blue. A purple. A purple. I mean, it's just amazing. It's it's like, we do, Ryan, have a, a statement or, or just coming out from John Eastman, who is one of the co-conspirators, his attorney, saying um, that uh, Eastman will not plea, that there'll be no plea, no cooperation. He says, if he were invited to plea bargain with either state or federal prosecutors, he'll decline. The fact is, if he's indicted, he'll go to trial. If convicted, he'll appeal. And he also says that the indictment relies on misleading presentations. So I think if he does go to trial, he be convicted. Um, the evidence here is, super, is very strong. But it also does set up something kind of interesting, which is that he might try to defend himself in ways that will hurt Trump. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what's happening right now in California, where there's a proceeding to have him stripped of his bar license. And John has, Eastman. John Eastman. And John Eastman has said, I never told the president that uh, Vice President Pence could reject the electors. That would have been illegal. <laughs> And what is happening in paragraphs 92, 93 of this indictment? It alleges that John Eastman told the president just that. I don't think Trump would like to hear that because it'd be, then it would be him saying, nobody told you that, uh, President Trump, that you could suggest to Vice President Pence to reject the electors out of the seven states because that would be patently illegal. So it actually sets them up against each other if that's the road. Right. That his whole, so even without pleading, he, he's throwing someone under the bus. Very well could be, if that's his defense. Trump's whole defense is, you know, I relied on my lawyer. And if his lawyer, as Ryan is saying, says, no, I never told him that, right? That throws his defense out the window. Right, which is all is all incredible. And, and, and Laura, just like the, the unprecedented territory we're in. I mean, as I said, we're, we're having a whole discussion about whether someone should know the sky is blue. It's unbelievable. Think about it. I mean, three indictments in four months. And by the way, it's only Tuesday, everyone. And we're only in <laughs> August. Thank it's you about for to be Wednesday, Laura. It's about it's to be about, Wednesday oh, you know in 20 what? seconds. Three, two, one. You're right. <laughs> Thank you for watching, everyone. It's time for us to go to bed and start a new, fresh day tomorrow. But our coverage is going to continue. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.